He said, why do you think? He said, actually, I'm going to answer a question that you've been asking me your whole life. And I was like, what question is that? And he said, you've asked me many times, why? Why have you let so many bad things happen to me? Why did you do those things to me? And I said, yeah, I'd love to hear the answer to this one. And he said, Ricky, it's one word. It's relatable. He said, I needed you to be relatable, son, because what I want you to do is I want you to go into the valley. Life is like a mountain range. We have peaks and we have valleys. And he said, people will find themselves in the valley and they'll camp out there and they'll think God can never love me. I've gone too far. And so I'm just relegated to the valley. He said, I want you to go into the valley and I want you to tell them your story. And I want you to remind them that if God can love a man like you, he can love a man like them. And then I want you to tell them, go home to daddy. That's where you need to go. Pack up your stuff and leave the valley. It's not for you. You're supposed to walk through the valley, not camp out there. He said, and I want you to know that the reason I did those things for you, not to you, was so that you would be relatable because I'm going to lead you to lead others to healing. Mm-hmm. And I thought, oh my word, <laughs> I never thought that my life could have so much purpose. Mm-hmm. I never thought that God, that, that God could take a man like me, the mess that I am, and, and, and make something good out of it. But he has, and he did. episode of the Life and Leadership Connected podcast. I'm so excited that you're here. My name is David Aliana Cruz and I am your host. In this podcast we talk about life purpose, our why that it gives us meaning and direction for what we do in life. We talk about life and leadership. What gives us life? How do we become and continue to be good leaders with a great impact on other people? How do we combine life and leadership in a healthy and sustainable way? These are questions we will discuss in this podcast. If you want more information, go to lifeleadershipconnected.com. Lifeleadershipconnected.com. I'm your host and coach, David Daliana Cruz. Let's dive right into this episode. Hello, everybody, again to the uh, this episode of Life Leadership Connected podcast. Today we have a very special guest. His name is Ricky de Sluder. It's uh, like a German you, like uh, Sluder. Sluder, Ricky de Sluder. Oh, great. Uh, and as I usually do, I will give a short presentation of who Ricky is. He's a published author and public speaker, and uh, he lives in Fort Worth, Texas, United States of America. And he, li- he is a life coach and a head coach and CEO. Uh, at uh, at an organization or something called Accepting Truth, Finding Hope. Uh, and he's a survivor from extreme childhood trauma. Uh, and earlier he suffered from a complex post-traumatic stress syndrome from serving as a police detective uh, in the state of Texas for 10 years. And he is also a survivor of severe mental health problems for 40 years from negative experience in his life. And uh, that led to he got improper uh, belief systems about himself uh, and life in general. And he sought he uh, uh, he sought help through uh, the traditional mental health model, with with medication and and therapy uh, for this, but without experience and any any particular help or release from these problems. And uh, this led to that he he walked away. He walked away from this kind of help, and he found another kind of help that we'll be talking a bit about a bit later and this helped work much much better uh, and today he works as a coach and he coached people sidelined by by life just like he was and um, he side he helped them back to come back to life so to speak to, to function normally he found that a faith-based a faith-based uh, approach was what helped him uh, and that that could be an alternative way back to health to, to mental health and um yeah, and today he also helps people uh, identify, overcome, and grow from life circumstances that are negatively um, impacting them 
and uh, yeah, and there's four 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 key areas that to work with. That is uh, acceptance, uh, identity, security, and purpose. Uh, is there something I missed, uh, uh, Ricky? No, you got it, David. I appreciate the introduction and the and the kind and warm words. Okay, thank you. And if I didn't say it before, welcome again to the podcast, Ricky. Uh, tell us a little bit about yourself. I mean, tell us a bit of your story uh, so we understand like a bit uh, your life journey. And um, so we know, uh, uh, so we understand how did you get to where you are today? Sir, so um, take you back to early childhood. I was about, uh, I guess, four years old, and my mom and dad were married then. And uh, I'd say we had a, a, a normal life. Uh, my dad had a construction company. He kind of came from nothing, uh, and you know, probably eighth grade education, and built himself into this uh, business that he owned and was doing well. And he ended up doing a project for a man. I think it was about 1979 or so. And uh, that gentleman used the term loosely had defrauded him out of about $90,000, I think, uh, in that time, which was a lot of money. Mm-hmm. And my dad made the conscious decision that, you know, he could pay the IRS or he could pay his men. Uh, and these men had kids and they needed to to eat. And he, you know, thought I, I will, I will forego paying my taxes and I will make sure these men eat. I'm not going to leave them destitute, uh, despite what this other man did to me. And the IRS disagreed with his decision, (laughs) as you might imagine. And Mm. they ended up seizing everything that we owned. And Mm. it was uh, quite the um, bad situation. Uh, I don't quite know how else to say it. It was hell. And as a result, my dad, I'd say, just kind of lost his way. He he became very murderous. Um, he was so angry at this man for what he had done, and he couldn't see past his own rage. And he wanted to kill the guy, uh, and thankfully he did not. But he turned all of that negativity toward his family, and he would just fly off in these fits of rage. <clears throat> and I, I remember watching him one time tear a uh, a recliner in half with his bare hands like how does a person do that i mean you have to be that you have to be very angry and so he's very violent and he said horrible things uh to me that negatively impacted you know my identity um and all i really wanted was for him to love me you know i'm a little Mm -hmm. boy and he would call me you know the p word and you know call me a candy ass and things that you shouldn't say to a little boy Mm -hmm. you know um but he was just kind of lost in his own his own stuff. And anyway, he um, ended up leaving the family. And then it was down to my mom and my sister. And so, you know, we were very poor. Um, I think I slept on a couch from about age nine to about 16 uh, and did life alone. Uh, um, while my mom was trying her best to deal with her own stress and things going on as a result of my father's, you know, decisions, you know, she had to work two jobs. And it left it left me just kind of fending for myself. And so, you know, all of those those uh, issues in life just kind of were frontal attacks on my own identity. And it caused me to strive for the acceptance of others. I, I began thinking that, you know, David, if I could just get straight A's, if I could just do well in sports. If I could just, you know, do these things, accomplish these tasks, then, then, then my dad will come back. He'll love me. And my mom will want to spend time with me. And mm-hmm. none of those things occurred. It just caused me to work harder and strive harder and continue on this, what I call now a rat wheel of insanity, striving for the acceptance of others in hopes that I could just find that one key thing that we all want. Mm-hmm. It's love. Yeah. So I'll kind of pause there, uh, but that's, that's really, that was the foundation of, of young Ricky and all of that set a foundation for me as I became a young adult and into my uh, adult years. Yeah. Uh, one foundational event that happened uh, as a result of kind of being a unsupervised youth, I ended up hanging around some fairly rough people. Usually what happens whenever you're, I'm going to say poor white trash, that's what we were. <laughs> and, uh, 14 years old, I ended up in a robbery slash gang jumping situation where these men 
were, were trying to rob us at one a.m. Uh, behind a pawn shop in Dallas, and uh, it was a knife fight. And uh, one guy cornered me in the car that we were in. He came into the car and he put a knife between my eyes. And I have since then stared into the eyes of evil many times. But that was the first time that I saw evil in the eyes of another human being the way that I saw in him. And I haven't seen that degree since then. Uh, he was he was a very lost soul. Uh, mm-hmm. And I ended up talking him out of killing. And I remember the look on his face, the bewilderment that he didn't even understand why he wasn't going to go through with what he told me he was going to do. But as he backed away and the confusion on his face and he exited out of the car and within probably 30 seconds, I watched a a friend of mine uh, kill him with a machete. Mm -hmm. And it was that event really that made me pause and kind of take stock of the fact that I don't want my life to continue this way. I want more uh, out of this life. I, I Tonight I almost died. Uh, it wasn't the first time in my young life, but it was a pivotal point where I, I thought there's got to be more to this. And I've got to figure out how to get myself out of, of this you know, wrong side of the tracks. I, I've got to go make something out of my life. Mm. And and that was, again, kind of a key moment uh, for me as a young man. Uh, 14, of course, so I was very young still, but mm. uh, very, very um, impactful. Uh, I, I never really dealt with the trauma. I, I pushed it all down and just thought I got to use it as a stepping stone, <laughs> you know. Mm. So I, it, was un, it was undealt with. But it was also kind of a springboard that I want to go to college. I want to, you know, do. I want to accomplish those tasks. Again, I went right back to striving. Mm-hmm. Uh, if I can accomplish these tasks, then I won't have to live this type of lifestyle. Mm-hmm. So I'll, I will pause there if you have any reactions. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, uh, yeah, I think uh, you said that your, your trauma made that you want to to to, to become good in school and good grades, and I think that's so typical. That when you don't get love, you, you can do anything just to get this love somewhere else. So I, I do recognize that, and it's so typical. Um, and um, uh, and my question is, uh, uh, if if you if you meet somebody, I mean, you coach people, but uh, but if you find somebody that also suffer from uh, similar uh, traumas and uh, mental issues. What would be the one advice you would give them if you would meet your own self, your young self today? What would what, what yeah. advice would you give him? That's a great question. One of my favorite Christian songs is a song called "Dear Younger Me," uh, and I, I resonate with that song because if I could go back and just sit and counsel with me, I would let me know that one, it's not my fault. Um, those things that occurred weren't because of me. It was just it was just part of my journey. What something that I've adopted saying to people is that, you know, David, we all go through hell, this side of eternity. You know, we all have our, our negative experiences. Mm-hmm. And many times we think that those storms of life are our storms. Mm-hmm. But sometimes, David, we're just getting rained on. And in my young life, that was my dad's storm. I, I refer to it in my book that, you know, there was a hurricane forming off the coast of his life. And I thought that, honestly, I didn't grow up in the church, and, and but I always knew there was a God. I, I don't know how to reconcile that, but I just did. And But I thought he was very angry at me. And I thought he, he's own, he must be angry at me. He must be disappointed in me. I must not be doing something right, because otherwise, why would he send all of these things my way to, to torture me or to, mm. to harm me? And I, and I had everything twisted, uh, you know, I, I didn't have, I didn't have any theology. So I had bad theology and, and I was young and impressionable and I was, I was taking in everything that was coming at me and I was allowing it to shape me and we, we all do, but I allowed it to, to really shape and inform my identity and my security and, and ultimately my purpose. I think everything about this life is, is, is around purpose and so today, when I what I try to tell people to, to really get to the, the core of your question is that if you haven't yet addressed the strongholds in your life, then I don't know how you plan to move forward. 
Because many times those strongholds, and I'll explain to you what I mean by that here in a second, those strongholds become something very akin to the interior of a car, okay? We have a windshield, you would agree, which is the largest thing in front of us. And that is what we look through to see where we're going. But we have this little bitty thing up here we call a rearview mirror. And if we spend all of our time focused on that rearview mirror, how will we ever move forward safely? You can't. You're going to wreck, right? Unless you turn your attention and your eyes toward the future and your present, right? Your present toward your future. And so we spend a lot of time in the past. Why do we do that? Well, much like I said, I had an anatomy of a stronghold that was on my life. I had listened to the lies that had been told about me, that I was no good, that I was too you know, poor to ever become anything, that I was just white trash, that I was you know, all these negative words. And when I, when I believed those lies, I literally like pulled a metaphorical hundred dollar bill out of my wallet and I bought them and, and I accepted them as though they were a gift and that, that it was something that I should prize as a possession. And so I bought those lies. And as a result of buying those lies, David, I then formed improper belief systems not only about myself, but about the world that was around me and about people. And from there, I then started with negative behaviors. And, and the way I refer to those negative behaviors is I, I call them what the soothing salves of addiction. Some people turn to alcohol and drugs. I started drinking at about 13 years old. Uh, I started smoking at 15, uh, smoking a pack a day at least, um, and drinking way too much for my age, fighting. Uh, you know, I was just involved in a lot of, of negative things, but then I discovered sex <laughs> as a 15-year-old boy. And I had already been exposed to pornography and I had been sexually abused uh, going back to as young as eight years old. And so I had a, a, a improper belief system there as well. And I thought that, well, I can't get my mom to love me the way I need, and I can't get my dad to love me the way I need. So maybe if I can meet uh, someone else, my my counterpart, you know, my soulmate, and then I can get them to love me. And the only way that I knew how to express that was through sex. And that became obviously a horrible <laughs> way to try to, you know, soothe my aching soul and mm. all of the stuff that was there. I was pushing it down and then using sex to cope with it. Mm. And as you might imagine, that didn't end well. All it did was lead me to being a full-blown sex addict mm. uh, in my um, early 20s. Mm. And I had no idea. I had no idea that that's, mm. that, that, that rat wheel of insanity that I was on is is what I was. I, I would have never told you that I was a sex addict. It took me until I was probably 37, 38 years old to come mm. to that conclusion. Mm. Mm. And then, you know, even then I recognized it was true, but I didn't want to admit it. You know, it was a, it was a hard thing to, to, to swallow. And so that stronghold, again, by the lie, form the improper belief. And then, you know, you develop these negative coping behaviors. And so that anatomy, that stronghold is what was really leading me to strive for the acceptance of others and thinking that into my, um, you know, high school years when I went to my high school counselor and said, I want to go to college. I want to be more than I am. But you know, I had hair past my shoulders and I stunk of cigarette smoke. And, you know, he looked at me and he said, Ricky, you're, you're just not college material. You know, you, you really should think about automotive technician school. And David, it just, to say it pissed me off was an understatement. I was an honor student. Uh, I was great in theater. I was about to get a college scholarship. Really, I was about to get a college scholarship for football. And yet I, I, I listened to him and believed him, but at the same time, I didn't. It was, it was that kind of tipping point that I developed, and forgive me for saying this, but I, I said, you know, F you, like I didn't tell him to his face, mm. but I said it afterwards. It's like, F you, I'm going to college. Like, mm. and if it, if it kills me, I'm going to go to college just to spite you for telling me that I can't, you know? And so I had that, that level of motivation in me that was, I'd say a negative motivation, but for, for positive gain, um, that, that kind of drove me to go to college. I did graduate with honors. And when I sat there with my honors cords around my neck, all I could think about was I'm going to find that man and I'm going to choke him with these cords. 
And then I thought, no, 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 I haven't yet accomplished what I'm seeking to accomplish in this life. I'm going to wait until I do that. Then I'll go find him. And then he'll have to admit he was wrong about me. How foolish is that? You know, that I, mm -hmm. that I was holding on to that, that little grudge of, of him telling me that I was no good. And it, it stuck with me uh, into my mid-20s. A man that I didn't even know. I can't even tell you his name today. I have no idea who he was, but but that wound was so fresh, and it was just amplified by the fact that it had been uh, the same wound. I would say that you know, if you've been stabbed, and then somebody else comes along and stabs you in that same spot over and over and over again, it just hurts, you know. And so I just carried that, and I didn't realize that my real problem was really with the boundaries that I had never formed with my folks and, and hadn't dealt with any of that stuff that was poison in an infected wound that I had just continued to just push down and say, mm. we'll deal with that later. I, I, I have too many things to accomplish today, you know? So I'll, I'll, I'll pause there. Uh, and, and hopefully I answered the question that you're yeah, trying to absolutely, get me Absolutely. And, um, and, and you, um, yeah, I am, um, and you, you, I realized that you, well, I, I started to read your book a little bit and uh, what you found uh, as a, um, that that um, helped you out of these mental problems was faith. Uh, and so you, yeah. you found a faith in God. Um, I did. Uh, and um, and how, how did that happen? Um, so uh, can you explain a little bit about, about that? Oh, and when, when, did it when did it happen? Yeah, yeah, of course. So, so I, I, like I said, I'd always known there was a God. And, and for some reason, when I was a young police officer, I would drive around uh, the streets of Dallas and I was on day shift and uh, 9 a.m. Central Time, uh, uh, Insight for Living with uh, Chuck Swindoll, I believe it was, would come on. And then right after that, it was David Jeremiah. Uh, there were two great Bible teachers on a, a Christian radio station that a friend's mom had introduced me to. Uh, that I thought was terribly boring. I got to be real with you. I thought, mm. why does anybody listen to this crap? Mm. Um, and, but I was just forced to myself, like eating vegetables. You know, I didn't like the taste, but I just wanted to eat them for, I thought it was good mm. nourishment. Mm. And I just fell in love with these two Bible teachers. And I really began to listen to what they were teaching. And it just was like water on a sponge, you know, a lot of it soaked in, but some of it just fell off too. Uh, but I but I continued listening to them over and over and over again. And so that was in, I don't know, I was probably 24 years old or so at that point. And I wasn't going to church. I sure as heck wasn't living, you know, a Christian life. I was in my first marriage. I remember having like 18 affairs that I kept up with. Uh, so I was not living a good life, uh, even though I was trying every day to to help people, you know, but I was just a train wreck. And come along uh, 32 years old, David, I in the same boat, <laughs> different storm, so to speak. And, and my then wife and I had decided, you know what? Seven years is enough. We're, we're just not in a healthy relationship. Let's get divorced. And I'm on my way home from work one day and she calls me and she said, Hey, you know, I've been sick. And the doctor said, I have a sinus infection and I have this, I have that. And I'm pregnant. And I went, okay, hang on. You're, you're what? <laughs> How did that even happen? We were told that we couldn't even conceive a child together, you know, because probably because of my stress, uh, partially, but too, she had some female things mm. that would uh, preclude us, as the medical science said. Mm. Well, they were wrong, <laughs> as they often are sometimes. And so I just remember hanging up the phone with her and telling her, okay, we'll, we'll talk about this when I get home. And I just lost it. I just, I literally just started yelling at God and saying, why are you doing this? If It's one thing if you want to torture me, okay? It's another thing if you want to give me a kid and then make them live through the hell that you made me live through. Like, I'm begging you don't do that to this child. And, you know, as I, as I just poured my frustration and my heart out to God in that moment, really bitching, not, not anything else, I, I, I realized something. And I said, okay, you know what? I'm sorry. I recognize that, that I don't create life. You do. You're the creator. And so if you create life and you gave me this child, then there must be a reason for it. And I don't understand it. So all I know to do based on what I've been learning is that I'm just going to give this child back to you. I, I just, I'm going to dedicate this child back to you. You do with this child, whatever you wish. And that's all I got, you know, 
And so nothing crazy happened or changed in my life after that prayer. But um, uh, many weeks later, we go to the doctor to have the echo uh, to find out gender. Uh, We're probably about 17 weeks in utero at this point. And the uh, technician just abruptly tells us, hey, the, the head, arms and legs are not growing properly. There's two heart defects. By the way, you're having a girl. And David, I can't tell you what those words did to me. I, I, I was so overwhelmed that I literally just sat straight down. I didn't know the chair was underneath me. Thank God there was one. But I just I just sat down and I just was like, what? <laughs> How is this possible? Well, uh, they sent us to a specialist. The specialist then were at 19 weeks in utero on our first visit. And they said, hey, you guys have a decision to make because we don't believe your child will be viable. Um, and I'm like, decision? What, what are you talking about? And they said, we need to know whether you want to have an abortion because week 20 is your next visit and that's the cutoff. So we need to know your decision for next week's appointment. And I remember thinking to myself, man, I've always said that I'm a pro-choice person, that I would never consider that. But now I have to consider it. I have to consider whether or not this is the right decision or not. And I thought, my God, I feel horrible for ever judging anybody who had to make this decision. And I remember I went home and my, I went to my office and my wife went out on the patio uh, and, you know, I was just sitting at my desk and it dawned on me all of a sudden that 10 years earlier, God had began downloading poetry into me. And I began writing these poems that I knew were not my own. And I wrote this one poem called Dear Mom. And it was the most beautiful poem I've ever written in my life. And it was about abortion. Mm-hmm. And I pulled that poem up. It's like something in me told me to do it. And I pulled that poem up and I read it. And I knew then, okay, one, I always wondered why you gave it to me. Now I know why. Number two, that poem is for me. And I can't possibly abort this child. It's not my place to take this life regardless of what doctors are saying, I I have to make the decision that I choose life for my daughter. And so talked to my wife, she agreed. And that's what we did. Well, my daughter had no heart wall at all, separating her top two chambers of her heart. And she had no heart wall at all, separating the bottom two chambers of her heart. Sometimes people have a hole, you know, it's small there. She had no septums at all. Basically a two chamber heart. And she had a, uh, a rare form of dwarfism, uh, she's a little person, called Ellis von Krabel syndrome is what they finally uh, arrived at as a conclusion. Well, when she's born, they whisk her away to the NICU. Uh, my wife had been taken to another side of the hospital because she had a cesarean, so she had to go you know, heal uh, from that. So I just followed my daughter uh, to the NICU, and my, my family had actually made a cameo appearance, as I say, there in the waiting room to be there for the birth of my child, which I I did appreciate and her family as well. And so I I saw them, I said, hey, she was just born. I'm gonna go in here, find out what's going on and I'll keep you all updated. So I went in, scrubbed in and I'm just sitting there looking at her in this incubator and I'm just mesmerized and overwhelmed that I'm a dad. And, and, but I just thought, man, what is, what's gonna happen? You know, what's gonna be with my child? Well, the cardiologist, neonatal cardiologist met up with me and he said, Hey, your daughter doesn't have two heart defects. And he paused <laughs> and I went, I'm getting excited. And he goes, she has four. And then my exact words to him were, who lets you talk to people? Seriously? Like, why in the hell would you present it that way? And he just looked at me like dumbfounded. And I was like, dude, like that was not okay. Like, I thought you were gonna tell me good news and you give me bad news. I was like, okay, that aside, what is what does it mean? You know, what what else is wrong? I know about the two heart defects. What are the other two? And he said, well, her mitral valve is perforated. It, it's supposed to open and close like a door, if you will, sliding glass door that kind of bounces into each other. They said, but she has this extra slit in it. And he said, so blood is flowing through that and it's coming back into her ventricles and it's going to go into her lungs. And he said, and then there's this membrane that I discovered that's blocking her pulmonary vein in a way that's also creating backflow. And he said, so basically, you know, three weeks old, uh, she'll go into congestive heart failure and she'll die. And I went, what? And he goes, she's going to die. Like, I can't help you. 
And I went, what do you mean? Like, we can't get a heart transplant. We can't do heart surgery. Like he said, can't get a heart that fast. And there's nothing to fix. Like, I can't fix this problem. She's going to die. I'm sorry. And I went, well, that's the best news I've heard today. Like, oh, mighty. Like, what the hell? And so befuddled, I went out into the lobby, waiting room. I shared this information with my family and her family. I said, I got to go tell Amber. So I went upstairs, uh, told her we cried together, came back down. And where my family had been previously sitting, the chairs were now vacant. And I remember thinking to myself, David, you're fucking kidding me. Like, this is the hardest day of my life. And you're going to make a cameo and then disappear. And I remember I sat down in the seats where they were at. And I just went, you know what? F it. I guess I'll do this by myself too. So I went back into the NICU, spent every moment I could with my daughter. And then I, I realized I have dogs at home. Crap. Like, I, I got to go let my dogs out. But it was like 1 a.m. Like Those poor dogs had been up for so long. They'd been, they'd been there since 5 a.m. the mor previous morning. And so I, I rushed home. I let them out. I lit a cigarette. I'm sitting on my back porch. And I just sit back in that chair. And I just, I, I did this. So I did, I said, all right, King's X, Lord, you got me. Like, mm. I, I've been trying to figure out how I'm going to control my way out of this one. And I've got nothing. I, I, there ain't a damn thing I can do. So my exact prayer was, I said, if you give me this child a day, a week, or a year, I'll praise you still. I don't know what else to do. And I said, so for the first time in my life, you know what? Your will be done. And nothing crazy happened, but that's just where my heart was. I didn't know what else to do but surrender. And so I went back to the hospital. Uh, the next day, they did the same echo. I watched it again. I watched blood flow where there were no heart walls. Had been watching that since week 19 in utero. Okay, so for 21 weeks now. I'm sorry, uh, 19 weeks now. I've uh, been watching that occur. And then for the next two days, same thing. And then on Wednesday, the third day in NICU, uh, the cardiologist ran it again. I watched it again. This time I left, went to my dogs earlier. I came back. My daughter's gone. And I remember seeing her little incubator thing. And I'm like, there's no edifices that she was even there. And I'm like, oh, my God, my kid died. Like, that's this is horrible. So I'm frantic. And I'm looking everywhere for her. The nurse intercepts me. And she says, are you okay? And I said, no, I'm looking for my child. Where, where is she at? And she's like, oh, we had to move her. And I thought, well, of course, she's worse. So she's probably on a ventilator somewhere. So let me walk through that door and see the next horror show. And so I'll walk through that door. And instead, it's bassinets and rocking chairs. And a nurse is sitting there holding my daughter, feeding her. And she said, hey, dad, do you want to feed your daughter? And I went, oh, my God, yes. Like, that would be the most amazing thing. So we switched places. And she said, hey, did the doctor tell you? And I went, tell me what? She goes, I, I can't tell you. He'll have to tell you. And I was like, okay. So I just relished that moment, feeding my child and holding her for the first time. And he comes in and he is disheveled and he is like a, a lion at the zoo. He's, he's pacing and he's like, can we talk? And I went, of course. So I handed my daughter back off to the nurse. We go in this room and he said, remember I did the echo. Remember we watched the blood flow back and forth. And I went, yes, I've been watching that since week 19. And he was like, yeah, well, I reran that test and there was a perfect septum the second time I ran it. It was not there this morning. I ran it at 5 p.m. It was a perfect wall between her ventricles. And I went, whoa. And he goes, yeah. And that membrane that was blocking her pulmonary vein, there's no evidence that it ever was even there. And I went, oh, my God, like, that's a miracle. And he goes, Yeah. Like he said, actually, his exact words were, he said, that's physiologically impossible. And I went, oh, I, I get that. That's why I said it's a miracle. And he goes, yeah, I don't believe in those. And I went, well, you call it what you want, but you tell me how it happened. Mm. And he's like, I don't know. I think my machine was glitching. <laughs> and I said, so your machine and the other guy's machine, 19 weeks, come on. Like, that's not, that's not plausible either, you know? And I said, okay, well, that aside, what, what does this mean? And he said, you'll take her home on Friday. David, March 17, 2008 is when my daughter was born. That week, Friday, was good Friday. Mm. And that was not lost on me. And so I had, a, I had a realization when I was putting her in an Easter dress on Sunday morning when I had her home with me. 
two heart defects had been healed. She still had two more, so she wasn't out of the woods. But it was one of those situations where I went, Lord, you did this. I don't know why you did this. I wouldn't have done this for me. I don't know why you did. But apparently everything that I've thought about you, meaning thinking that you were this mean, angry, wanted to just bump me off this blue marble kind of a God, I've had you wrong all along. Mm. And I don't know what to do with this right now other than to say thank you for giving me my little girl. Um, so I'll pause there. That's that's how I really came to a relationship mm. Uh, mm. where faith really began to matter in my life. And it was mm. no longer a rule book, but it became more of a playbook. Dear viewers and listeners, I hope you enjoyed this podcast. If you want coaching and be coached towards purpose, be equipped for life and leadership, or find ways to a balanced life, then go to lifeleadershipconnected.com, lifeleadershipconnected.com for more information, and to sign up for a free consultation call. I am your coach, David Daliandre Cruz. Wow, amazing story. Um, thank you for sharing that, uh, Ricky. My pleasure. Uh, uh, I wonder also, uh, because uh, you, there's, there's four areas that you, that you focus on uh, when you coach people. Uh, and it's, uh, uh, it's acceptance, uh, no, uh, identity, uh, security, and purpose. Uh, uh, why did you show, choose those areas? Or, or, and, <laughs> and like, I'm glad you uh, asked that. Yeah. I'm glad you asked that. So I'll, I'll fast forward a bit. So God ended up healing my daughter two more times. So she ended up having five strokes later after heart surgery. Uh, she was never supposed to walk again, talk again, or anything. Full brain damage. And third day, God healed her again. And today she's an honor student, all kinds of stuff. Like she's an amazing child. Uh, the strokes had also destroyed her vision and God ended up healing her vision back to perfect 2020. Like stuff you can't make up. And it just continued to reinforce to me that I had him wrong and I needed to really invest in a relationship with him. And so I began uh, doing that. He had taken me out of law enforcement, which was what I thought was my purpose. Uh, he took that away from me and it kind of pissed me off, uh, to be honest. But I ended up seeing uh, over many years later uh, when he did give me those four words. Um, and, I, and, I, and I asked him, like, why can't I get these four words out of my mind uh, once I was in a real relationship with God and meeting with him every day and doing what I call two-way journaling? And his answer back to me was, he said, Ricky, what have you done your whole life? And I went, that's a loaded question. I don't know what you're asking. And he said, what does Revelation 3.20 say? Uh, I don't have a clue. So I got my Bible. I read it. And it says, behold, I stand at the door and knock. Anyone who hears my voice and lets me in, I'll come into him and eat with him and he with me. And, and I thought, okay, I think I know what that means. Like that means I've seen the, seen the painting of, of the Jesus and there's no doorknob. Like you got to let him in. And he's like, yeah, but what have you done, Ricky? And I went, I don't know, Lord, what, what, what are you asking me? And he said, Ricky, you have gone around knocking on hearts' doors, seeking who would let you in because you wanted their acceptance. And the moment they let you in, they let you down, didn't they? And I went, yeah, yeah, they did. And he said, so then you went to another heart's door and you just kept that process up. You just kept doing that. You were on that rat wheel of insanity, thinking that acceptance is for you to receive. And it's not. He said, you see, the devil takes everything I do and he counterfeits it. He said, so when you take those four words and you put it in the man sphere, all the atoms like you, he said, what you do is you go seeking acceptance for yourself. And then that falsely informs your identity. It's why you thought your name was detective for the better part of 10 years until I took it away from you and you no longer knew who you were. He said, and you had your security wrapped up in that badge and that gun and your purpose as well. He said, you thought, Ricky, that I only made you to be an investigator as if I'm that shallow. And I went, you're right, I did. And he said, but when you get it right, son, you'll realize that I already accepted you. It's why I stand at the door and knock. You see, acceptance is for you to offer to me. And when you do and you let me in, then I'll show you who you are. And he said, and I did that for you, didn't I? And I said, yeah, you did. And he said, and then I'll show you that your security rests in me and in my word. 
and you won't find your security in temporal things anymore. And then I'll lead you to your many purposes because I didn't make you for just one thing. I made you for many purposes and I'll lead you to every single one of them. And he said, and that's what I want you to go teach the world. And I went, I think you got the wrong guy. <laughs> he said, no, I didn't. He said, why do you think? He said, actually, I'm going to answer a question that you've been asking me your whole life. And I was like, what question is that? And he said, you've asked me many times, why? Why have you let so many bad things happen to me? Why did you do those things to me? And I said, yeah, I'd love to hear the answer to this one. And he said, Ricky, it's one word. It's relatable. He said, I needed you to be relatable, son, because what I want you to do is I want you to go into the valley. Life is like a mountain range. We have peaks and we have valleys. And he said, people will find themselves in the valley and they'll camp out there and they'll think God can never love me. I've gone too far. And so I'm just relegated to the valley. He said, I want you to go into the valley and I want you to tell them your story. And I want you to remind them that if God can love a man like you, he can love a man like them. And then I want you to tell them, go home to daddy. That's where you need to go. Pack up your stuff and leave the valley. It's not for you. You're supposed to walk through the valley, mm -hmm. not camp out there. He said, and I want you to know that the reason I did those things for you, not to you, was so that you would be relatable because I'm going to lead you to lead others to healing. And I thought, oh, my word, <laughs> I never thought that my life could have so much purpose. Mm. I never thought that God, that, that God could take a man like me, the mess that I am, and, and, and make something good out of it. But he has, and he did. Mm. And so that's why those four words are so pivotal to me. And what I've discovered in working with people is that every one of us deal with those four needs. And what's interesting, David, is that we all try to be the God of our own life, meaning we all try to, we all try to fulfill those four needs ourselves every single day. And then when we get 35 likes on uh, Facebook, we're going to post something else if we can get 37, you know what I mean? We're striving, right? And so when, when, we, when we continue to do that, we're the God of our own life. We're the one trying to pull the marionette strings. And what we have to do is realize it all begins with surrender, just like I did on that back porch, unwittingly, but I did. Mm, wow, thanks. Yes, sir. Mm, I usually uh, ask four questions uh, in this podcast. And, and the fourth, first question I will ask you, um, uh, this um, it's about leadership. Uh, because, um, I mean, I'm thinking, I, I, I give you the question first. Tell me about your leadership of yourself and others and about some challenges and milestones that have shaped you to the person you are today and the, and the most important lessons you've learned as a leader. Uh, and I, 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 the question, I will rephrase that question a little, bit, a little bit for you, Ricky. When you look back on your life uh, and these many experiences you ha have described, what was it that helped you to survive and continue and not give up? Uh, and is that a kind of leadership? Uh, this is like a rhetorical question. Isn't that kind of leadership uh, of yourself? And uh, my question to you is: did, 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 What lesson did you did you learn from that? Yeah, what, what I think I learned primarily is that I, I ended up in management, okay, in a leadership role very early. I was an operations manager for a period when I was like twenty-one, um, way over my skis, if you mm. will. And I've been in many different managerial positions since then. What life has taught me is that a person who, who ends up in that role, who has the designation as a leader, some people act like a leader and some people act like a manager. Mm. There's a difference. Mm. Leadership is really being willing to serve the interests of others mm. and helping them to grow and really being a guide and a teacher for those who, who are serving underneath you and teaching them also to be servant leaders. Mm. I think the problem in our society is that because we try to fulfill those four needs, many of us, and myself included at, at a given point in time, thought if I can just end up in that top spot, then I can call the shots. 
and I can be God over that organization. And that's why insecure men and women sometimes end up in those high places and they make life hell for everybody underneath them. And so what I've learned at this point in my life is that my job in that role is not to take your success away from you. It's to help you understand why you're succeeding and then to help you to grow so you can continue to succeed without ever thinking that you need to step on the throat of another to do so. Mm. Mm. Yeah, that's what you. I that's what I learned from it. Yeah, thank you. Thank you. Um and um uh, another question I wish to ask is like this tell me about uh, tell me about um, uh, what gives you life within the area of focus that you've chosen to spend most of your your time in, in your life and how you keep your energy at high level day by day. Uh, so and my question is what what gives you life today Ricky? And restoration uh, from a hectic workday when problems come your way? Yeah, it's a great question. I remember asking God one time, like, I had a vision one day, or I was on this mountaintop, and really I was kind of camped out there. And when the vision ended, what God revealed to me was different than what I thought. I love mountains, I love the majesty, and I always feel closer to God, I guess, because the elevation maybe. Mm. Uh, and it's my happy place. And, and I I took it as a positive thing. And he said, Ricky, that, that's not a positive thing. He said, what you've done, son, is that you have retreated as high as you could possibly go so that no one can get to you. And he said, if I wanted you to be on an island by yourself, he said, don't you think I could have taken you and the other 8 billion people on this one rock and I could have distributed you all on your own place? I could have, but I put you all in one place for one important reason and it's relationship. He said, you've got to learn to be in relationship with people, even if they hurt you. You've got to learn how to be in relationship, and you have to be able to foster relationship. And he said, so what, what, you, what, you're, what you're doing by isolating yourself is, is the opposite of what I need you to do. So when we think about why, why leadership is important, why do we need to be in these roles, you know, what is it all about? Well, it all comes back to the foundation of building and being in relationships with one another. Mm. You and I could probably succeed at something on our own. Okay. But how could you, David, have the podcast and be successful without the guests that you've brought on? Right. And, and how can I, as a, a life coach and a person, an author, be successful if I don't also have people like you willing to bring me onto their show and us be in a relationship together and cultivate and learn from one another and be willing to listen, not just hear and, and take that information and grow from it. So mm -hmm. I hope I went the right direction with what you were asking me, but for me, relationships are so fundamental, but it's also sometimes the thing that we put all our energy and focus on when it's a negative thing. And we try to then distance ourselves as opposed to, hey, how can I build a bridge between the two of us, you know, and learning how to let go of maybe some of the, the insecurities and the negativities that occur, especially in the workplace, and be able to go to that proverbial toxic person and say, hey, can we start over? You know, if I've hurt you in some way, will you forgive me? And can we learn to grow together? I'd love to learn from you, you know, mm -hmm. as much as I'd love to also help you know you learn from me. I think if we had that kind of selflessness, then we would be way better at this game called relationship. Uh, it's when we become selfish that everything kind of falls apart. Yeah, yeah. So, so, so um, I, I think you answered my questions, uh, but I think so. You mean what keeps your life when when you have a tough day? Yeah, relationships. Yes. Mm. Yeah, it all comes back to relationships for me. So yeah. if, if I have somebody that I can come to and like you said, what's going to refresh me? Mm. What's going to give me, you know, the, the energy to continue? It's, it's knowing that I'm not alone. You know, mm. I may have a horrible day on Monday mm. and if I go out to social media, I'm going to find out that everybody had a great day on Monday. And in fact, they had the best damn day of their life, mm. right? Because they're only putting the good things out there nine times out of 10. But if yeah. I can go to a trusted trusted person, I can say, Hey, how was your day? You know, what, what went on in your day to day? Mm. Well, I had this, I had that, you know, and I'm like, okay, so I'm not the only one struggling. And if I can have that honest conversation and then we can encourage one another that, mm. look, you have purpose and meaning. I believe in you and don't give up. 
don't let the hardship that you're currently in cause you to quit. Mm. Press through it. Remember, it's a valley that you go through. The valley of the shadow of death, you walk through it, the scripture says. Mm. Don't camp out. Pack up your pack up your sleeping bag. <laughs> Keep going. Yeah. You know, yeah. don't, don't give up. So those yeah. relationships are integral to us. Yeah. 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 Great, great. Um uh, another question here. Uh, uh, that I usually ask on the podcast. Uh, we, we've sure. spoken a lot about purpose. Uh, and the, the question is, uh, what, what gives you purpose, meaning in life? What is your why, your purpose, your motivation for what you do? And I, I think I realize what it is. But uh, but my question is, um, uh, you help other people with to find purpose in their life. And how, how does your own purpose look like in, you, in your life? Uh, what is it that, that gives you motivation for what you what, for what you do? Yeah. So what what I what I love is, you know, during my whole struggle, okay, when I especially when I was writing my book, like I spent five years waking up mm -hmm. at 5 a.m. and meeting with God and writing. And I had to live every chapter. And it, I, I wanted that book to be over with so bad mm -hmm. because it was just like, okay, if I can just be done, then maybe good things will come, you know. Mm -hmm. And but it's it's perspective, right? Mm -hmm. And so I don't know, David. I I I just uh I, I guess I believe that. Um, oh, sorry, I I, I I I sidetracked myself. Give me that question one more time. Yeah, sure. Um, uh, I mean, you 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 help other people to find their purpose, uh, and how oh, yes. does yes? Mm. Yeah. So it's seeing the light bulb go off in, in their mind when 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 I if you and I could sit down and you're sharing with me the things that you've gone through, and I can help you have a perspective shift to see that these things aren't happening to you. They're happening for you. They're, they're actually for your good and your growth. If you'll choose better over bitter, <laughs> right? Mm -hmm. But you have to be willing to choose better over bitter. And, mm -hmm. and when, when I can help somebody see that, okay, yeah, these are challenging and dark times that I've gone through, but yes, there is a purpose for my life. I was, I was created on purpose and for a purpose. And when you can help somebody really see that and, and then start to overcome those strongholds mm. and they begin to build security uh, in, in, in growing a relationship with God and, and with themselves. I think, you know, there's a, there's a, one of the most famous scriptures that's ever out there is when the Pharisees asked Jesus, what's the greatest commandment? And he said, love the Lord God with all your heart, soul and mind. But the second is just as great. Love your neighbor as yourself. Well, we always focus on love your neighbor part, but we miss the part about as yourself. Mm. If you don't love you, how can you ever love anybody else? Mm. And so teaching someone that they have worth and they have value and, and letting them start to really bask in that, it's a beautiful thing when you're able to then have a day with them. When they, when they really say, today I told myself in the mirror that I love you and I finally meant it. I finally yeah. believed it. Yeah. Wow. It's like, man alive, everything that I went through was worth it if I'm able to help them reach that same place. Mm, thank you. Thank you. It took a long way to get there. I apologize. but No, it's, it's okay. Uh, and uh, and the fourth question here, and uh, that comes uh, comes in the, with the podcast, tell me how you successfully combine your role as a leader of yourself and other people and your life as a healthy human being. What challenges and success success factors? And to rephrase that to, to you, um, uh, Ricky, how do you keep a healthy work and life balance, for for example, between your speaking engagement, uh, coaching tasks, and other things you do, uh, family life, and so on? Yeah, I, I struggle like everybody else, David. There, I have uh, I have really good days and I have really bad days, mm -hmm. and. You know, yesterday uh, was one of those days where I kind of found myself in, I'd say, a low. And, mm. you know, what I should have done, and I didn't, but what I should have done was reached out to trusted people in my life mm. and said, hey, today is not my best day. You know, remind me of what truth is. And, and that's what we... Again, it comes back to that relationship factor. God put these people in my life, not for me just to go play with, right? But to but to encourage and to edify and for them to encourage and edify me in return. It's reciprocal. Mm. And so I think as long as we can continue to do that, then 
you know, I can be refreshed. I've gone to God many times and said, okay, who encourages the encourager, right? I've told 30 people today that they're wonderful, but I'm not feeling so great about myself. And, you know, he'll remind me, well, one, I'll do that through our vertical relationship, but you have these horizontal relationships. Come on. Mm-hmm. Like, quit acting like I haven't put people in your life who can help you. Mm-hmm. You just have to be willing to go to them and say, I'm struggling. And sometimes yeah. our pride gets in the way. Yeah. Mine too. <laughs> yeah. For, for okay. all the wisdom that I've learned and yeah. share, sometimes I'll take my own damn advice. So. Yeah. yeah. Uh, finally, uh, you can t- tell us a little bit about your book, because I, I, I guess all that we talked about, I mean, it, most of it is in your book. Uh, yeah. Tell us, uh, um, uh, why should we buy your book? I mean, I've started to read it and it is phenomenal, but, but t- tell us okay. a little bit. Yeah, thank you. Well, you can probably testify to this. I tried to write it in a tone that you and I are having a conversation. Mm. So if you like a conversational read, I think that you as the audience would uh, appreciate at least the tone that I take. I'm asking a lot of questions. I probably leave you with more questions than I ever give you answers. Mm. But the answers are also there if you choose to dig in and, and seek after them. You know, the fact is, is that we all have a past. The fact is, is that rearview mirror sometimes becomes as large or larger as the windshield. And the book is designed to help you put those things into perspective, to say, what is my past and why does it have meaning for my present? And what does it mean for my tomorrow? Mm -hmm. We all want to know who we are. I think the four questions that you already have read in the book that I'll I'll share as a teaser out for those Mm -hmm. others is, why are you so insecure? Who are you? Uh, You know, I'm sorry. Uh, why are you striving for acceptance? Who are you? Why are you so insecure? And what is your purpose for living? Why were you ever created? And I think if you sit down and you really begin to ponder those questions in light of where you've been, where you are, and where you want to go, then the book is designed to help you to resolve the issues of your past, to take the the pain and the hardships. And if God says that he'll take bad things and make good out of them, why can't we? And then seeing what what are my gifts? How how have I been gifted that I've been using in the wrong way? And how can I then apply it? If I get the equation correct on acceptance, identity, security, and purpose, and I can stop the striving behavior, and I can begin to really figure out who I am absent all of the temporal things in this life, then if I lose the temporal things, I don't lose my identity, right? And so much of people is that it's all in the temporal. And take that away from them and watch them kick and scream, just like I did. <laughs> and I, I'm open about that in the book. Uh, you you walk through some of my challenges with me in the book. And, you know, and I have moments where I'm I'm railing at God. And then I go from you're doing this to me to then saying, nope, time out. I know you're doing this for me. And so if you're looking for something to help you grow, really grow in a real way, not platitudes, not a bunch of pie in the sky nonsense, but something that you can really grab a hold of and apply it to your life, then accepting truth, finding hope might be the book for you. Yeah. Say say the title again so people get it. You bet. It? It's accepting truth, finding hope. Okay. And the reason that I that I went there with that is that I think we all want happiness, <laughs> but happiness is just an emotion. It's really hope that we all want for a hope for a tomorrow, a hope for today, right? And, you know, but we have to accept truth. I won't give away what that is. I'll let uh, those who have a curious mind uh, go and look for the book. It's in Amazon. It's in Barnes and Noble. It's everywhere where books are sold. So uh, you can find it easily. Yeah, thank you. But thank yeah, you accepting good. truth, finding hope. Yeah. And and if people want to, to get hold of you and ask you questions, where can I reach you? Yeah, so my business is under the same title. It's acceptingtruthfindinghope.com. Um, I have uh, all of my information is is out there. I have a lot of information. I have links to the book. Uh, I've been very fortunate to be featured in some major media as well. Mm-hmm. And so I'm uh, I'm 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 all there under that same brand. So it yeah. should be fairly easy, I think, for folks to find me. But my first name is Ricky. Uh, my email is Ricky at acceptingtruthfindinghope.com. So yeah. feel free to visit my webpage, get the book, call me, email me, however you want to do it. But yeah. uh, that's how you find me. Yeah. Thank you, Ricky, for for, for uh, being a guest at this podcast. Uh, and um, and viewers and listeners, thank you for, for, for being here also. Uh, my name is David Adena Cruz. 
and this is the, this is the Life and Leadership Connected podcast. Uh, I hope you join us next time for the, when the next episode is released. Uh, but for now, bye bye.